This month we're starting something new before the sermon, uh, brief gospel reading. Uh, can't go wrong reading the gospels. You're reading about Jesus. So we're going to begin at the book of John, and we're going to read the first five verses. I'm going to read the first five verses of John. Uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, our gospel reading for the day. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And our sermon text, it's a a springboard text uh, from Psalm 119. There are a lot of texts I could have used for this Education Sunday, but I'm going to spring from this one, and then we'll be looking at some others throughout the message. But this is the one I want to, I want to springboard from. Psalm 119, verse 130. The psalmist writes, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Let me read that again. The unfolding of your words. That's what teachers do. That's, what, that's how God uses teachers. He uses teachers that we've recognized, prayed for, encouraged today to unfold his words before us. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. And aren't we glad? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day, another Lord's Day. We thank you for our church family. We thank you for the guests that we have here today. We pray that they will uh, feel welcome and loved. But more than that, Father, we pray that they will be taught today. We pray that you will teach them, that you will impart wisdom to them, that you will unfold your words to them and give them light. We pray you'd bless them, Father. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Give us ears to hear it today and hearts to embrace what you want to say to us. Make us attentive to your words. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, it's good to be back up here. It was a joy last month hearing uh, from from, uh, Ken and Lyndon two of our missionaries that we support, and then fellow elders, Ryan and Jeremy. Uh, man, what a blessing to hear them. But, man, there's, it's a joy to be back. It's always a, a good to return. And, and, and thank, you for, uh, thank you, Ryan, for your prayers for me. And uh, thank you for our church family for allowing me to be here this morning. Uh, as we've already said, today's Education Sunday. Uh, Sunday school started back up today. Sunday school is the heart of our education ministry. We also have teaching ministries on Wednesday night. Those will crank back up in September. But Sunday school is the heart of it. And uh, and praise the Lord, it started back up today. It was such a joy to see those kids coming in, excited, uh, uh, beautiful looks on their faces. Uh, Some of them dressed to the hill. I mean, it was great. It was just really good to see them. So this morning, uh, as we usually do on Education Sunday, I want to I strive to speak to you this morning from God's Word on the importance of teaching within the context of church life. If you're 
in any way familiar with your Bible, you know that the importance of teaching permeates the Word of God. Uh, Our springboard text talked about unfolding, the unfolding of God's words and uh, the imparting of understanding. And what's the primary way that that happens? Well, through teaching. Yes, you can get it through personal reading of your Bible, and we all need to be doing that. But another way God does it is through teaching. I find it troubling that many professing Christians do not place that quality on top of the list when they are considering or searching for churches if they place it on the list at all. But, but what did Paul say to two of his mentees? What did the mentor Paul say to his younger workers in the faith, uh, Timothy and Titus? Well, let me give you some examples. 1 Timothy 3.2, an elder must be able to teach. Must be able to teach. First uh, Timothy four eleven and twelve command and teach the doctrines of the Bible. No matter how young you are, no matter how people may look down on you for your youth, those words were spoken to Timothy. First Timothy six three teach what lines up with what Jesus taught, and with what accords with godliness. Second Timothy two two teach people who will also be able to teach. That's one of the thrills of teaching, is to think back and look at people that you taught and now they're teaching. There's nothing like it. It's so encouraging. And some of these kids that are in your Sunday school classes, one day they're going to be teaching, God willing. One day they're going to be doing what you're doing. And, and, and you are one of the reasons that's going to happen, according to God's will, Okay. Uh, second Titus 2 1 Paul told Titus teach what accords with sound doctrine and we could go on and on that's just four or five there but we could go on and on looking at the importance that teaching uh, is uh, is from God's word when you get home today read Psalm 78 1 through 7 I believe Jeremy included that in his opening prayer for the service that's the that's the base text for our next generation ministry. And it points out there uh, the importance of teaching the next generations. So it's not just a New Testament thing. It's throughout the Bible. Bottom line, teaching is serious business. Teaching God's word, teaching spiritual truth uh, is serious business. It is not an option for God's church. A church that does not teach It's people. The Bible is just a social club and not a church. We educate in the church so that the people of God, whether they be children, teenagers, or adults, might know their God. And why is that important? Because in John 17, 17, 3, Jesus said that was the definition of eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God. And how they're going to know him if they're not taught about him. So, I want us to do some corporate pondering this morning from the Word of God. Um, Since the Bible is what we labor to teach, I've got several things this morning that's on your sermon sheet if you're using that about the Bible that I want us to consider today and ponder together. Okay, first one is the joy-producing effect of Scripture. The joy-producing effect in Scripture. 
Uh, look at the little letter toward the end of your Bible, uh, the third little letter of John. Third John. It's only got one chapter, so third John, verse four. If you go to Revelation and just back up two books, there you are. Right before Jude, third John, verse four. The apostle writes this, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. Now think about who wrote that. And when he's talking about children, he's talking about spiritual children, okay? We don't have any record of, of physical children. So he's talking about people that he had, he had, he had taught, okay? Spiritual children, children in the faith, now, to ponder the writer of that statement, the Apostle John, you remember him, right? You're familiar, you should be familiar with him. He's the, he's the disciple who loved to call himself the disciple that Jesus loved, okay? He's the disciple that Jesus loved. He, he was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter and James. He was, he witnessed the miracles of Jesus. He was leaning on the breast of Jesus when our Lord instituted the Lord's Supper. He was one of the first with Peter at the empty tomb. He fellowshiped with the resurrected Christ. Can you imagine that? He saw Jesus on the island of Patmos as he wrote the book of Revelation. He was given a glimpse of heaven's worship. He received the glorious vision of the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, the holy city. He saw the river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God. And of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city that we will dwell in one day. Now, ponder all that. Ponder all that John saw and all that John experienced. And the wonder and the awe and the joy that must have accompanied those experiences. And then ponder his matter-of-fact statement in 3 John, verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. A God that experienced all that the Lord allowed him to experience. But then he says that. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So I ask you, Paris, this morning, when it comes to your kids, what gives you the greatest joy? Think about it. John had some pretty amazing experiences, but not a single one of them produced more joy in his heart than hearing that the next generation was walking in the truth. That's amazing to me. That's amazing to me. Is, is there anything that brings you more joy than knowing that your kids are saved and are walking in the truth?
And how do they do that? How do they get there? We teach them, beginning with you. You teach them, and then we come alongside you if you want us to. Sunday school is not required, but we're there if you want us. We educate them. We, meaning parents first, followed by the church family, we educate them in the things of God. We teach them God's word. We proclaim to them the gospel relentlessly. We never give up. Even if they're groaning out of the house, we never give up. Think conversely for a minute. Is there anything that brings you more sadness than knowing your kids aren't walking in the truth? And it begins in the home. The church provides the reinforcing supplementary ministry of Sunday school and Kids Rock and Solid Rock and things like that. Not in any way to usurp the role of parents. We won't answer for your kids. You will. Parents will stand before the Lord. But we're there to provide help for those who want it. And that's why we teach. That's why we teach. In obedience to the Great Commission. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. Secondly... Let's ponder together the unhindered power of Scripture. The, un, the unhindered power of Scripture. You may say, well, I'm not, I'm not very good at it. I, I, I want to teach the Bible to my kids. Uh, I, I, I might l- like to teach a Sunday school class, but man, I'm not really good at it. Well, here's what I say to you. I think of Paul's words in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. When he said, while in chains... While imprisoned, while bound, and suffering for the gospel, he says, but the word of God is not bound. The word of God is not bound. It's not not really a matter of your ability. It's a matter of the effectiveness and power of the word of God. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is a powerful book. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I love this quote by James Montgomery Boyce commenting on, uh, on this thought of our, our inability and the hindrances that, that might, we might think are in us, okay? He says this, when you and I talk to people, including our children, about Jesus Christ, we are often conscious of the hindrances in us. We do, not seem, we do not seem to have the answers to their questions, for example. We wish we could present the gospel more clearly and more wisely. We wish we had more experience to draw from. And there are hindrances in the people that we're talking to as well. They are hostile. Or they, they might be out of touch or indifferent. People do not want the gospel today any more than they wanted it in the days of Jesus Christ or Paul. Yet in spite of these hindrances, 
The Word of God itself is not hindered. Our task is merely to make it known, knowing that the God for whom all things are possible will bless it. It will not return void. And that's his promise. So our task is merely to make it known. Our job is to boldly teach it, proclaim it, to confidently speak, to persuade, and then trust. Trust. We get it to their ears. God has to get it to their heart. We do our part. Trust God to do his part, to do what only he can do, work in the heart of his elect. And listen, it doesn't matter if people look bored or uninterested. I'm not looking at anybody right now. It doesn't matter if the students you're speaking to are nodding off to sleep. It doesn't matter if people don't look like they love what we are teaching as long as we are teaching this. It's our job to teach. It's God's job to incline our hearers' hearts to his word. And with God, all things are possible. All things are possible. With God, the most bored-looking person today can be the most Bible-hungering person tomorrow. With God, the child who has walked away as an adult can return home like the prodigal. With God, all things are possible. And that gives us hope in our teaching, no matter what our ability is, no matter how good we think we are or are not at it. The power's here. The effectiveness is here. And that's why we teach. That's why we teach. That's why we have an education ministry at Rockdale Community Church. That's why we have Sunday School and Kids Rock and Solid Rock and Band of Brothers and Women's Bible Study. That's why we have a pulpit ministry. So that every Sunday school lesson, every Bible study lesson, and every sermon can be the secondary means through which the sovereign God works in the lives of his people. Number three, let's ponder together the immeasurable treasure of Scripture. The immeasurable treasure of Scripture. I love this verse in in Mark chapter 6, verse 34. You may have skimmed over this, uh, but there's a great uh, lesson in this one verse. Mark 6, verse 34. Speaking of Jesus, it says, "When, when he, he is Jesus, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Do you see the connection? Jesus had compassion on these people. He felt for them. And what did he do? 
He taught them. He taught them. That blows me away. That blows me away. He taught them, thus making teaching an act of compassion when done properly. He taught them many things. Now, I'd love to continue pondering that link between compassion and teaching, but I had to cut something out. So I want to, I want to ponder the many things. He had compassion on them. So the first thing he did was not give them a free lunch or, or clothing, or he taught them. That was the first thing he did. Not saying that we don't need to give people free lunches sometimes and clothing, okay? Yes, we, we, we have a, um, uh, a ministry that does that when their needs arise. But it just struck me that Jesus' compassion moved him to begin teaching. And he taught them many things. I wonder what those many things were. What was on Jesus' list of many things that he wanted them to know? Man, that, that makes for some good pondering, doesn't it? It made, made for good pondering for me several years ago. Uh, I think at a, uh, our Education Sunday uh, service, uh, maybe 10 or 11 years ago, we pointed this out, that there, there's an overwhelming line in the Great Commission. And I know most of you are familiar with that in Matthew 28. And it blows me completely away. And it involves the third all in the commission. Remember the commission, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. That's the first all. All authority has been given to me. Okay. And then he commissions the church to make disciples of all nations. All nations. That's the second all. Don't, don't exclude anyone that I call you to. Be ready to go to all nations. All is ethnos, all people groups, all types of people. Go to all types of people. Don't be prejudiced, okay? Don't, don't lock anybody out from the proclamation of the gospel and, and the, 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 the striving to make disciples. Make disciples of all nations. So you've got all authority. Jesus has that. The call to all people groups. Second all. Third all is this that blows me away. Teaching them. There's teaching in the Great Commission. We've been commissioned to teach. Okay. Didn't even mention that one earlier. Uh, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. All that I've commanded you. Wow. What a... What a life goal. What a seemingly impossible task. Can it even be done in a lifetime? So let's, let's try to corral this a little bit and ask ourselves. Okay, Jesus has commissioned us to teach everything that he taught. Okay. All right, Lord, we're going to strive to do that. We might die before we make it, so we want to be sure to, to get some of the important things on the list. So about 10 or 11 years ago, I made a list. In answer to this question, what would be the absolute bottom line basics that we would want our upcoming generations to know when it comes to the things of God? 
with the goal of teaching all that Jesus has commanded, what would be, where would we begin? What would be the things we want to make sure we get to our, our children and our teens and our upcoming generations? And I started this list, like I said, about 10 or 11 years ago. I've, I've added a couple more to it, so I want to share it with you again. Things we want to be sure to teach our children with the goal of teaching everything that Jesus commanded. But these are the things we want to make sure we get. Now, your list might be different, but I want to share mine with you again. Okay, number one, God gloriously and wonderfully is. He exists. He's real. And he has revealed himself in creation, in the Bible, and in his son, Jesus Christ. Number two, God created humans in his image, male and female, two genders only. I added that one because I made my first list before 2015, and you know what happened then. Third, God is in absolute control at all times. Now, our youth this weekend, we gave them a new phrase for that because a lot of people, I've noticed God is in control while a true statement, a definitely true statement. He is in total control. Sometimes people will roll their eyeballs at us at that. Oh, yeah, that's what you Christians always say. God is in, God is in, yeah, we've heard that a million times. Okay, here's a new way to say it. God is Lord of the chaos. He's Lord of the chaos. So tweak the wording a little bit. When things are going bad, when things are not going so well and you want to encourage, just be reminded. Okay, I've heard God is in control of me and tell, oh, here's a new one. He's, he's Lord of the chaos. He's Lord of, the, he's Lord of all. He's Lord of the good times, bad times, Lord of the happy times, joyful times, Lord of the sad times and heartbreaking times. He is, he is, he is in control. He's Lord of the chaos. And we got a lot of chaos going on right now in our society, but he's Lord of it. He's Lord of it. He's still on the throne. We want our kids to know that. We want our kids to be certain of that, to be confident of that. Number three. Uh, Number four, God does all things for his glory. God does all things for his glory. Sometimes it's hard for us to make the connection when it's hurtful things, but ultimately he does. He does all things for his glory. That's got to be our starting point. That's got to be square one. That's where we want our kids to begin. These are some of the starting point things that we want to teach our kids. You, You begin here, you know. Everything here is true. It's true. This is God's word. You might not understand everything, but we begin with that truth and that belief. God's word is infallible, imperfect, inerrant. And everything that he says is true. Number five, God is the giver of life and breath and all things. He's the giver of life and breath and all things. Number six, God's word is truth. It's truth, even when you don't understand it. Even the parts you don't understand, even the parts at this point in your, in your uh, mental ability or growth, you, you, you just can't figure out, you can't see it, but you start there. God's word is truth. It is perfect, and it will never lead anyone astray. Number seven, Jesus is God, and he lived and died and rose and ascended to save sinners. 
Boy, I got to know that. We got to know all these things. We want our kids to know all these things. Number eight, the Holy Spirit is God. And he lives in every believer, making them like Jesus. That's why we teach. So the Holy Spirit can use our teaching to make our students, our listeners, our children like Jesus. Number nine, our lives are a vapor and our days are numbered. So don't waste it. Don't waste it. Live for God with all you got. Don't hold back. Get off the fence. Get off the sidelines. Immerse yourself into the church and God's call on your life. Our lives are a vapor. Days are numbered. Number 10, we are utterly, utterly dependent creatures. Totally dependent creatures. Apart from God, we have nothing that matters. Number 11, sin is real. We are real sinners. And there are many tragic consequences to sin. We want our kids to know that. That's, that's a warning. That's a, that's a warning call. Sin is real. You were born a sinner. Jesus can rescue you from your sin. He is able. Number 12, people are either saved or lost. There's no neutrality. We, we hammered the two-ness of... Uh, of God's order in Kids Rock a few years ago. You know, lost, saved, male, female, uh, light, dark, good, evil. We just hammered that. We hammered that. People are either saved or lost. There's no neutrality. There's no neutrality. Number 13, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only message of salvation. Only one. The only one. Number 14, i got to move faster. The gospel states emphatically that I am so messed up that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved that it was his joy to die for me. Hallelujah. 15, God's grace is real. 16, Jesus is all sufficient. 17, through the cross, sin and death and sorrow will one day be no more. He will wipe away every tear. 18, pride is ridiculously ugly. And humility is wonderfully beautiful. Don't you want to teach your kids that? Don't you want your kids to know that? Pride is, is hideous. But humility is beautiful. 19, worship is the greatest human activity. And it's to be toward God alone. We've got to stop worshiping our stuff. Number 20, serving is the greatest activity toward people, especially the people of God. 21, gratitude is the greatest attitude toward God and people. Jesus loves the church, and therefore so should we. 23, marriage is between a man and a woman. 24, hell is real and everyone deserves it. Last, heaven is real and believing the gospel of God's grace 
is the only way to get there. Now, these are 25 things that I want to make sure our rising generations know. Anything beyond that, man, icing on the cake. I don't know if I'll ever get to, to all that Jesus commanded, but I want to try. I want to make sure that these things are in the lesson plans. My, my list may change again, but the truths, listen, the truths listed on that list will not change. And that leads us to our final point, number four, the unchanging nature of Scripture. The unchanging nature of Scripture. Listen to Psalm 119, verse 89. Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Hear that? Forever, for all eternity, God's word is firmly fixed. It's not waffling. It's not wavering. It's not gumby, it's not flexible, it's not bending, it's firmly fixed in the heavens. So, based on that verse, don't leave me now, this last point might be the most important point. Based on that verse, I want to give this exhortation to myself and to all of our teachers and to all of our parents who are teaching their kids at home. Listen carefully, listen. Because God's Word is unchanging... Because it is firmly fixed, I can speak boldly and confidently about the subjects it addresses. We don't have to wimp out. We don't have to back away. We don't have to run. Because God's word is firmly fixed, unchanging, I can speak boldly and confidently about the subjects it addresses. God's word is settled. It is eternal and unchanging. It does not waver or change with public opinion. And because God's word is fixed, God is reliable. We can trust him. He is faithful. He has spoken once and for all, and we can bank on his word. We could build our lives on his word. We can speak and proclaim and teach his word knowing that what we are teaching is true. Everything God has said is true, fixed, settled, and final. Thus, we have a universal standard for which to build our lives on. The absolute nature of the Bible is what makes it effective. Let me mention some specifics before we close. We talked to our youth. We ended our week in the Word with that last piece of art, the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. When a person is born again, God puts that sword in his hand. And as that person is taught the Bible, the grip is tightened. The grip becomes more solid and sure. So I want to speak, I just want to mention a few specific examples on which we can speak because of the truth that God's word is unchanging. What God has said about how a person is made right with him is firmly fixed in the heavens. Jesus is the only way. He's the only way. People trying to shove the uh, 
mountain illustration down our throats. You can flush it. You know, the mountain illustration, God's at the top of the mountain. And you know, with mountains, there are a lot of trails and a lot of paths, but they all ultimately wind up with God. You know, there's the Buddhist path and the Hindu path and the New Age path. And then there's the Christian path and the Muslim path, but they all wind up with God. Now flush that. Jesus is the only way. Why do we know that? God has said it and it's firmly fixed. Repent and trust Jesus. That's the only way. When God says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, that path to forgiveness is fixed. It's fixed. I can stop trying to earn my way into heaven with my perceived good works and place all my trust in a crucified and risen Savior in the Lord. That's fixed. What God has said about his work of creation is firmly fixed in the heavens. No evolutionary theory can dismantle what God has said. No scientist or scientific theory trumps or destroys what God has said. God created science. God is Lord of science. And God created the world by the power of his word. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God created everything out of nothing. That's firmly fixed in the heavens. So we can teach that with confidence and with boldness. We don't have to back away from that. Third, consider, the, consider the, what we might call the fundamentals of the faith. The fundamentals of faith. When God says that Jesus was born of a virgin, that's firmly fixed in the heavens. Firmly fixed. We don't have to be embarrassed by that or ashamed of that. That's how it worked. That's how God did it. Well, think of all the fundamentals of that. Things like, uh, like virgin birth, deity of Christ, uh, substitutionary blood atonement, Christ's bodily resurrection, his second coming. Things that we, we consider fundamentals. All these fundamentals, listen, all these fundamentals are based on one fundamental. What God has said. What God has said. Everything we believe begins with our firm and solid belief that the God of the universe has spoken. And that it has been recorded in the Bible. And that it is firmly fixed in the heavens. Not, God's not going back and scratching anything out. And making amends and, or adding amendments. No, it's firmly fixed. Another one, what God has said about the definition of marriage is firmly fixed in the heavens. We got to quit running from that. It's firmly fixed. Doesn't matter how many opinion polls agree with the validity of same sex marriage. Doesn't matter. Nor does it matter how high the percentages go in the polls. I don't care if 99.9% of the people believe same sex marriage is right. That doesn't make it right. Why? Because God has said otherwise. God has said otherwise. It's firmly fixed in the heavens. What God has said about human sexuality is firmly fixed in the heavens. God has made human beings in his image and he has made them male and female. Those are the only two genders. Somebody told me, I'm not on Facebook. I don't know anything about Facebook, and I don't want to know anything about Facebook. But somebody told me that Facebook said there's 58 genders. genders. 
Who cares? Who cares what Facebook says, okay? 58 genders, really? Doesn't matter what they say, though. Why? Because God has said that there are only two. You can call yourself whatever you want. Guys can call themselves girls, and girls can call themselves guys, and some people can call themselves nothings or whatever it is. I don't know how you get to 58, but anyway, it, 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 it just doesn't matter. You can call yourself whatever you want, but it doesn't alter the fact that God created you either male or female. It's firmly fixed, firmly fixed in the heavens. How about another one? This one's more recent, maybe. No one is guilty because of the color of their skin. No one's guilty because of the color of their skin. We are all guilty. We are all guilty before God because we have all sinned. Every member of the human race is born guilty before God because we are all born sinners. How do we know that? God said it. No one righteous, no, not one. All fall short of the glory of God. That's firmly fixed in the heavens. And Jesus Christ paid the price for that sin with his blood. Ultimate justice was done at the cross. At the cross of Jesus Christ. And because believers are in him, no other payment needs to be made. The amazing gospel of grace is taking care of the debt of sin that I owed. One more. I'm not primarily part of a group in order to be labeled and in order to be in conflict with other groups. I'm not oppressed or an oppressor. I don't find my identity in my social class or my economic class or my ethnic class. I am primarily an individual created in the image of God. I find my identity in Christ and in Christ alone not in my socioeconomic group. As a born-again individual, there are two groups that I care about. Groups that God sovereignly and graciously placed me in, and not a group that some sociology expert has placed me in, like evangelical white men. Those two groups are his church and my family. My spiritual family and my physical family. And because of my placement in those groups, I'm identified as a Christian and a rumble in that order. And I will defend both of those groups to the death. Why? Because God's word, which is firmly fixed in the heavens, exhorts me to love and take care of and serve both my church family and my physical family. Many more specifics could have been given here, but listen, only God can be absolutely trusted and his words will never prove false. When I speak what God has spoken, when my speech aligns with what God has said, I can be confident that it's right and true, no matter what the experts say. You know what an expert is, don't you? A former spurt, okay? Because God has given us his word, we can speak boldly on those issues on which God has spoken. 
In Psalm 119, 160, the psalmist said, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Forever. In Isaiah 48, Isaiah said, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So teachers, teach them. Parents, teach them. Teach the words. Teach the words. Teach all that Jesus commanded. I love this Martin Luther quote. The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs to me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. The Bible is not antique or modern. It is eternal. It is eternal. In other words, it is firmly fixed in the heavens. All right, let me close with this. Like I did with the teacher two Saturdays ago, we had a teacher's meeting, and I closed our meeting with this. And I, want to, I want to close it with you. Uh, as I told him, I try to read at least, you know, the, the majority of my reading is theological stuff, spiritual stuff, Bible studies, commentaries, things that help me prepare to do this. And, but I try really hard to read at least two or three like culture books or political books because I, I do want to be, I do want to be, like, and I want us to be like the, uh, the men of the tribe of Issachar in, in 1 Chronicles 12, 32, where it said they, they understood the times. So I'm so thankful for folks like, uh, like Shanna that, that, that help us to understand the times. We want to understand the times. And, and one of my political books this year is, uh, is American Marxism by Martin Levin. Always promoted a secular book in the pulpit. Oh, no. Okay, yeah, I, I really am. I really am. I really am promoting that. And, and I, I think it would be good for you to read it. It lets you know some of the things that are going on in our world that a lot of Christians get in their bubble and they're kind of blind to, okay? And you need to, know, you need to understand the times. But I want to just read one. I want to read two sentences from the back of the book toward the end in the closing chapter when he kind of gives... Uh, some uh, practical things for people to do, okay? Uh, and I thought this, this connected so much to what we're talking about uh, today and what we talked about last Saturday and, uh, and the weekend of the Word. He, say, he writes this, We must take it upon ourselves to teach our children and grandchildren about the magnificence of our country, constitution, and capitalism and the evils of Marxism and the people and organizations that promote it. We must explain to them why it is important to support and respect our police and armed forces who protect us from criminals and foreign enemies. Okay, you say, Butch, well, what? No, that's all the secular stuff. That's all. What, what's, what's the deal there? Well, I believe what he just said is important. I, I believe it's very important. You know, I do. I want, I want my children and grandchildren to love their country and to respect the police and, and to, to, to love our Constitution and to love the, the way. You know, America's not perfect. It's, why would it? Is any, what country would be perfect? Every country is full of sinners. We're all, we're all sinners, okay? Getting back to the biblical worldview, okay? But I don't know where any other place I'd rather live. But anyway, that's an important statement. Those things that he said are important. But listen to me carefully. Listen to me carefully. I know, I know, boy, the, the, this could be cut and pasted and really made to look like I'm saying something that I'm not saying. What, 
what Mr. Levine wrote there is important, but it's not ultimate. It's not ultimate. Not all. It doesn't even come close to being ultimate. Here's what's ultimate. I tweaked the excerpt with about seven or eight words. Same exact words. I've just replaced some of the words. Here's the rewritten quote. This is what's ultimate. We must take it upon ourselves to teach our children and grandchildren about the magnificence of our God, his gospel, and his salvation, and the evils of Satan and the people and organizations who promote his works. We must explain to them what is important to support and love God's church and God's teachers who fight to protect them from the devil's schemes. And there you go. That's what's ultimate. That's what's ultimate. And I pray that every one of us, parents, school teachers, Sunday school teachers, elders, would teach the book. Teach the book. Not back off. Not be embarrassed or ashamed. Boldly proclaim what God has spoken. So, May the teaching ministry of Rockdale Community Church be one of the tools in the hands of our sovereign God to mold and shape our people, our children, and our grandchildren into bold, confident, risk-taking, God-loving, Bible-saturated, Christ-exalting, born-again individuals who do not back down when the world and the agents of Satan come against them for the glory of God and the furtherance of his kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for the two groups you've put me in. Thank you for my family and my church family. And I pray that you would pour out your grace on both of those groups, Father. Please save everybody in my physical family. Please save everybody in my church family. Help us stand solidly on your inerrant, infallible, fixed in the heavens word. Without apology, without shame. And may you be glorified in that, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're visiting with us today, we're so thankful for your presence. And on behalf of the uh, members of Rockdale Community Church, we invite you uh, to join with us. At